0: Christ and become like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now ever since I became a Christian about 20 years ago, I've been drawn to stories of people who exercised incredible faith in the most trying times. I remember the first time I read about Martin Luther who had been commanded to come before the Pope to recant and knowing that any refusal to recant would likely end up in his death He took a day, and then he responded to him, I cannot and will not recant for anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. I also remember reading about another saint named John Lambert, who during the English Reformation was hoisted up to where he hovered over the flames of... A burning at the stake incident, and the idea was that he would burn slowly. He'd burn from the feet up, that he would roast up. And as it got worse and worse, he cried out his reasoning. He made his plea, and he just said simply, none but Christ. None but Christ. And over the years, I've also been really encouraged by my fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters in the faith who have modeled tremendous trust in God in the most trying times. I've seen people suffer tremendous loss. I witnessed someone lose a child. I've seen people have their engagements broken off, people who seem to have been broken by depression. I've been there when people have wept for their loved ones who have passed away and didn't know Jesus. I've even seen people lose their jobs because they would not compromise their faith in Christ. Over the years, I've been encouraged by these things. I've been in awe that these men and women were able to trust God, remain faithful, and be so courageous. Now, I bring up these examples because, one, there are obviously correlations with the stand that we see taking place with these three men in Daniel 3. But also to point out that we're just regular people. All people go through trying times. Some of us are going through trying times right now. They will come. This isn't just something for martyrs. And trials of keeping the faith or suffering or all different types of trials, we're going to try to cover those today. But any time when our allegiance to God is put to the test, that's what I mean by trial, And this morning, we're looking at a story of very severe trial. Three friends who are tempted and even commanded to conform and compromise their beliefs. Otherwise, they might die. You could say another way to tell that story is we're talking about a story where three friends stood their ground and would not compromise their faith or even sin against God. Now, it's not a stretch to say that there will be times in our lives where we will face great trials or temptations or even find ourselves in a moment of truth possibly similar to this. And that's why I want us to consider three things from this passage this morning. I want us to first consider the friction that exists between our faith and the world. There is a friction that is inevitable for the believer when they walk through the world. Also, I want to talk about the faith that is required To go through this friction. I want to look at the makeup of the faith of these three men as they endure great difficulty. And then finally, I want to consider the result of their faith as they go through friction. What is the fruit? So if you want to think about this, we're going to talk about the friction, faith, and fruit. So let's begin with friction. And like I said, friction with the world is inevitable. It will happen. There will be difficult times when we will be called to trust God and not even know the outcome of what that might look like, to be called to believe and to follow and not know what that means for us. I really believe that Daniel chapter 3 kind of mirrors the New Testament example that we see in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are told to quit preaching or be put to death. And the apostles' response to that threat, or that ultimatum you could say, was, we must obey God rather than men. That ultimatum is similar to what we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going through right now. They were to either show devotion to this giant idol and worship it, or be thrown into a fiery furnace. That's the ultimatum. But don't be fooled. This story isn't about an ultimatum per se. It is really about allegiance. Will they show allegiance to their God, or will they show allegiance to their king and re- to their king on earth and risk death. Who will they bow to? Who will they show devotion to? It's a very dramatic and public scene. And one day that may be the case for you. I don't know. I don't know you may face a public moment like this. But Daniel three type trials are not normative for us. Most things don't play out like this. But that doesn't mean we don't face this type of a trial all the time. In fact, I would say that we face this type of trial every day. We fight this battle for the allegiance of our heart on a daily basis. Ian de clarifies the crux of this battle by asking a question. And he puts it this way. He says, are we going to declare the Lord to be our God, to be our primary allegiance come what may, or will we bow down to the multitude of glittering idols that the world presents to us? Now, most of the time, we're not going to be tempted to bow the knee or compromise our convictions to a physical idol. Most of the time, these idols will be idols of the heart, dealing with misplaced love for worldly things, worldly aspirations, worldly pleasures. Or you could even say that we'll be dealing with temptations, any kind of temptation that might ask us the sin that might be falling prey to the pressures that we get from an employer or even government to compromise what we believe. But no matter what the temptation, no matter what the idol, the message is always the same. Bow down and you will live or suffer the consequences. Friction with the world is something that every believer will go through because there's the simple truth that there is no commonality between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We will fight this battle of allegiance every single day. There are a few examples of this. One giant golden idol that stands before us, for many of us, is this idol of approval, the approval of others. And you may have thought that you graduated beyond wanting to be part of the in-crowd. We probably haven't. We just changed the name to approval of others but to belong to that group whatever you want to call it is not doesn't seem like that big of a cost to the outside world it just means this to belong keep your mouth shut about jesus fit into the mold of the group and then perhaps if necessary compromise on a few unpopular teachings of the bible do this and you'll be accepted and you'll live don't and then you'll be thrown into the furnace of exclusion and ridicule, and boredom. Now this feels different than Daniel chapter 3. It feels different than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's the same battle. It's asking the same question. Who, you, who will you serve? Now another 90-foot idol that sits in our midst is our appetites. And, I'm, and I do mean food, but our appetites are food, drink, or our appetite for pleasure or possessions. Uh, I paraphrase Mon- uh, James Montgomery Boyce when he says that we obsess over food or drink or sexual satisfaction or romantic daydreams because these idols tell us that if we don't give in to them, then we will be thrown into the furnace of frustration and disappointment. He also goes on to point out when it comes to these idols of desire, aspiration, comfort, no one is having to hold a gun to our head or threaten us with death. Sadly, we too easily give in to these idols all on our own. Even, you could say oftentimes, there is no friction. Now, most of the time, our, our battles will look a lot like this and not a public struggle with a king. Most often these little battles will be subtle, they'll be done more in private, and they'll be fought in our hearts and in our minds. Now that's just a couple of examples. There's obviously many more. We could talk about the battle of trusting God in really hard times. And I'm positive there's someone here who's going through a really hard time of suffering and heartache. We're, we're talking about how I deal with my allegiance to God during these things, and these can be some of the most trying times because this is the friction that takes place between our plans and God's plans. That's where our conversations begin to look a lot like Job in chapter 13 when he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Friction came to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through three words. Burning, fiery, furnace. Furnace. But that threat would soon be rebutted by three words from these friends. But if not. But if not. They said God will deliver us. But if not, we will never bow. What is the makeup of a faith that can say that in the face of death? Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the makeup of this faith. Now, Daniel chapter 3, if you were to look at it, it's kind of bookend with two decrees from Nebuchadnezzar. The first one is... Bow down and worship this idol or be killed. And then it ends with, and it closes with, another decree where he threatens death to anyone who doesn't pay homage to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you ask the question, why the drastic change? What happened? And I think it's obvious that you can point to the bold faith of these three friends. If you look in the middle of how this chapter is set up, right in the middle, from the beginning to the end, right in the very middle, is the confession of these three men. And look what it says, and again, we'll read 16 through 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we, will never, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Sinclair Ferguson says that if you, were, if you have any true faith in your hearts, you will want to stand up and cheer when you read these words. There is something rather inspiring of this simple message. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a simple message, and it was, King, this matter has been settled in our hearts and in our minds. Long ago, we decided who we would worship. We don't need to discuss this any further. You don't need to talk to us with your intimidation tactics. We get it. We understand. But our God is trustworthy. And he is able to save us. He's able to save us from you and all your threats. And he will deliver us. But if not, if he does not, if he chooses not to deliver us this day, and this day you turn us into ashes... You need to know he is still good and he will never fail us and we will never serve any false gods no matter what the cost. The options were bow the knee to this idol and live or stand firm and die. And they chose death. So what makes up such a firm faith? What would enable three men to trust God in this moment like that? And what can we glean ...from this incident that might inform our faith when we have a season of trial? Well, I think there's a few characteristics that you'll see. uh, Just so you can kind of think about it. I think that you'll see that their faith is sure, it's submissive, and it's supported. It's sure, it's submissive, and it's supported. And what I mean by it's sure is that these men are sure of two things. That God is sovereign and that God is true to his promises... I don't think what we see here is a heroic moment of bravery on the behalf of these three men. What I think we see are three men convinced that God is sovereign and that he loves them. They knew God was... And really, the sovereignty of God is the crux of their entire proclamation. They tell Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able. This is not theoretical theology that they have up in their heads. This is something they believe down into their bones... That is what they would believe that would be able to tell them God is in control and he's mightier than you. They were so secure in this one truth alone they made no other plans. They made no excuses. They did not try to talk around the answer when confronted by Nebuchadnezzar. This trust in God's sovereignty was the bedrock of their faith. It allowed them to peer through that paralyzing moment and just say, I trust he's going to deliver me and if not, I'll still worship him. These three friends knew that God loved them and that He was sovereign. You could make a reasonable deduction that they would have been foolish then not to trust them with their lives. They knew from the Scriptures that God was trustworthy. And they also knew from the Scriptures the first two commandments, which would have told them not to submit themselves to this idol or idol worship. And that is something that marked their faith, which was their submissiveness. A key characteristic, I think, of these three men and of their faith was that they were submissive to God. They didn't, like, it wasn't necessarily their refusal to bow down to this idol as much as it was their willingness to bow the knee to God, no matter what the cost was. It really was their submission that was so remarkable. Because if you think about it, lots of people know that God is sovereign. And lots of people know that idol worship is wrong and yet falter. Why do we falter? Why do we know if God is sovereign and we shouldn't bow down to an idol? Why do we do it? Most of the times, because we don't like the outcome that will come our way if we do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they put their trust in a covenant-keeping God. They didn't care about the outcome, you could say. They knew that God was able to deliver them, and if he did, his name would be glorified and Nebuchadnezzar would be thwarted. But they also knew that if they died, their death in the furnace would proclaim the worthiness of their God. Death in the flames would not have signaled a failure for these three friends. It would have signaled one clear thing, that today God's wisdom called for something else other than deliverance. They did not know the outcome of their plight any more than we know the outcome of our trials. They were not in the outcome prediction business to determine whether they were going to obey or not. They knew that their role was to trust and obey God. It was God's role to fill out the details. We may never know what God is up to in the hardest moments of life. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can know that God is good and that he works for our good. And that is enough. We don't need to know more than that. These three friends were wise not to lose perspective. Because if you back up, it was always about a simple choice. It was always a choice between two sets of flames. You're either going to face the flames of Nebuchadnezzar, or you're going to face the flames of judgment before God. They had already made their mind up who they were serving. Nebuchadnezzar says, worship me or be thrown into the flames. God says, worship me and I will be with you even in the flames. And that kind of leads to the last kind of part of the makeup of their faith. They're sure they were submissive, but it was supported faith. God himself supported them. The drama of this story, by the way, is already over. The drama of this story is who will they show allegiance to? The answer is God. But we still got to deal with the fiery furnace, don't we? Well, in the fiery furnace, that's where we see God show up. In years prior, Isaiah wrote in uh, chapter 43 uh, this prophecy to the people who would be in Babylonian exile. So this prophecy is written for people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says this in chapter 43. Fear not. Of that prophecy right here in Daniel chapter 3. Because when Nebuchadnezzar looks into this furnace, he sees four people walking around. And the fourth person he can only describe as someone who looks like a son of the gods. Most likely, this is a pre incarnate appearance of Jesus, or perhaps an angel of the Lord sent by God. But the important thing here is to remember that God was there like he promised he would be there. And it's not just a promise that we get from Isaiah 43. This is a promise of that I will be with you that's reiterated throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. It is in this promise that these three men put their faith. They held fast to the truth that God was going to be with them in life or death, that God would stand with his people like he said he would, and that God would not abandon them in their trials, but he would be with them through the waters or the fires. They held fast, and God showed up. I do want to highlight just one thing that could go by the wayside. That's important, I think, because we have a way of thinking that may just be a little bit off. God's favor, in this case, did not spare them the furnace. A lot of times we think God's favor means we won't suffer. But in this case... God's favor does not equal the absence of trials. He did not spare them from that fiery furnace. But his favor instead was his presence with them. That will often be true for us. So if we are undergoing suffering, or if we're being pressured to compromise, perhaps the question to ask is not, why am I in this furnace of misery? Maybe, perhaps, the question is, where is God in this furnace? How is he helping me and working in me? Now, this faith through friction brings fruit. There is a result that springs from faith amidst friction. I think there's two things we'll just highlight to end here. The first fruit I think we see in this passage is undoubtedly a greater faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego undoubtedly grew in their faith after this event. But our faith should also grow stronger after reading this story because it reminds us that God is committed to his promise to be with us. And this commitment to be with us finds its richest, deepest fulfillment, and clearest expression in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to be with us in our misery, in our trials. He took on flesh. He underwent pain. He underwent temptation. He underwent trials so that he could be like us and know us. One author said Jesus faced the difficulties and frustrations that we all feel without bowing his head to an idol. He never surrendered, even under the greatest temptation and pressure. However, even this humbling of himself was not sufficient identification with us in our trials. To complete that process... Jesus himself was falsely accused, condemned to death by Roman authorities, and nailed to a cross. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his obedience was tested and found faithful unto death. But I'd like to point out the difference. Unlike us, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the flames of death came for Jesus, He was not delivered. He did not receive help. He was actually left completely alone. On the cross, Jesus faced the fiery wrath of God that we deserve because of our bowing down to idols, because of our compromises of truth, because of our disobedience to God. And he did this so that in the end, Isaiah 43, in its most ultimate fashion, would be true for us, that we would pass through every fiery trial, even death. It's because of the cross of Christ that we know God is for us, that he is with us in every trial, and that we know that we can withstand and stand firm and trust him in the midst of every trial, even the gravest situations. This should not just grow our faith, but it should grow our follow-through, when it comes to standing firm when our allegiance to God is called upon. We don't have to bend the knee to any idol or any threat or grow bitter. But there's one thing we must do. We must bow the knee to Jesus so that he can be with us. Otherwise, we go it alone in this life and the next. So I think it's proper to ask the question, do you know the comfort of Christ like that today? That's one of the fruit. The last fruit is this. I think it, if you step back and look at it again, you have to notice the advancement of the redemptive message. If you look at verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar mockingly asks the question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? By the time you get to verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is answering his own question, by saying, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered them out of my hand. Just the difference in where his mind is at. How is that even possible? Because if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, this is a man who would not be convinced in any way. There is no line of argument, no apologetic you could have offered him to change his mind. So what happened? He encountered a living apologetic. He encountered believers who would stand firm for what they believe in and not compromise, even to the point of death. It was this living apologetic that validated their message. So what does that mean for us? It means our living apologetic, as long as our verbal one, matters. Not compromising our conviction at work matters. How we suffer hardship matters. How we deal with difficult things matters. How we stand up for truth and not bow to the pressure of the world around us matters. We may never know what kind of impact it makes, but it does matter. I remember April 20th, 1999, a long time ago. I was a freshman in college. I had become a Christian uh, about six months before this. I was a freshman in college. I walked back from my class into my dorm room, and my dorm room was full of people. Everyone's eyes glued on the television because April 20th, 1999 was the day two gunmen entered Columbine High School in Colorado and murdered 10 students, one teacher, and injured 21 others. Now, in the midst of that chaos that day, one gunman singled out a single girl named Valene and he asked her a very simple question do you believe in God and as it's reported she responded with the immediacy of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and she said yes and he shot her three times in the chest in the abdomen and in the arm and she lived why would God allow this to happen Colleen had no way to predict the outcome. She knew she just needed to be faithful. That was up to God to predict the outcome. But why would God allow that to happen? Why does God allow any of these trials that we go through to happen? I don't know exactly. None of us know exactly. But I do know this. A few weeks later, I come home from college in May, and I went to my dad's office to visit him and people that work there and I was talking to one of their salesmen and he knew I became a Christian so he, he came up to me and he said I have also just become a Christian I said well that's great tell me how that came about he just referenced a girl in Columbine Colorado that he'd never met but he had heard about her testimony and it forced him to stop his life and ask the question do I have faith like that I don't know what happened But I know that he, because of that living apologetic, turned and put faith in Christ. We never know what God is up to. All we know is that our job is to love God back and hold firm to the hope that we profess. Let us pray. Lord, you are good to us in ways that we don't even understand. We pray that you would help us to see how we may be vulnerable to bowing the knee to idols or worshiping false gods how we may be vulnerable to compromise, Lord, and we pray that you would encourage us in our faith, that we might be sure of the one in whom we trust, that we be submissive to your word, and that, Lord, we would know your nearness to us, that you are a God who is for us and with us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.